The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay, we are in Judges 6, it's verses 25 through 32. This is entitled Gideon, Judge of Israel, Part 3. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock, in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image was beside it. It was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Yes. Therefore, on that day, he called him to Baal, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Isn't it exciting? Just exciting verses. Even if we don't go through the content, it's just exciting. While clicking through YouTube, looking for something to watch as Hideko got dinner ready, a video of N.T. Wright came up. He was being interviewed about his thoughts on the modern state of Israel. He dismissed it as having any future significance in the redemptive narrative. A very brief analysis of his view is provided by Michael G. Van Lanningham. Imagine signing your name every week, Michael G. Van Lanningham. He says, Wright presents four arguments to support his interpretation. First, it is essential, he says, to understand that there is no discrete future for Israel as a whole because she has been superseded by Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Wright claims that Paul's theology begins with the realization that what the creator covenant God was supposed to do for Israel at the end of history this God has done for Jesus in the middle of history. God has brought all of his covenant promises for Israel to fruition in Israel's representative, 
the Messiah. Now, does anybody here agree with that? No. Good. I was going to tell you there's a door right there that you can go to. <laughs> N.T. Wright bases his argument on Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, which say, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. It is true that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. Therefore, the promises of God which were made to the people of God are realized in him. N.T. Wright's view, however, does not accurately explain the entire panorama of what has happened and what will happen. He committed the fallacy of a category mistake. Just because Jesus did everything necessary for Israel's salvation and so forth, it does not mean that everything concerning Israel's future in the redemptive narrative is complete. He also committed a false dilemma fallacy. In essence, he says, because Jesus is the Messiah who has fulfilled all the promises of God, there is no longer any need for Israel in the redemptive narrative. He proposes two options, one of which is fulfilled, therefore the other must no longer apply. His thinking is incorrect. Those are not the only two options on the table. Just because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the messianic promises of God, it does not mean that the promises to Israel are terminated. Israel was promised a Messiah. Israel was not promised to be the Messiah. Through his faulty logic, he concludes that the church has replaced Israel and that there is no such thing as the rapture, a millennial rule from Jerusalem, and so forth. He has failed to understand what God is doing because, among other things, he has failed to understand the binding nature of the Mosaic Covenant upon Israel. Any reasonable theologian will agree that what came upon Israel in the Roman exile, that means after Christ, is because of their rejection of Christ. But the Mosaic Covenant is what led to that exile, or there would have been no exile. Otherwise, all the other nations on earth should have been given the same punishments as Israel, punishments which are spelled out in Leviticus 26, and which presupposes a second exile. But only Israel was given the law, and only Israel receives the punishments detailed in it. As for our verses today, they will typologically reveal, once again, the incorrect nature of replacement theology. Unless one understands what is being pictured, and it is as obvious as the nose on Jimmy Durante's face, once it is explained, all kinds of aberrant ideas about Israel are sure to arise. Our text verse comes from Isaiah 40. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. If Israel was exiled based on the curses of the law, then that exile must, by default, mean that there is still a purpose for Israel. There is no time frame given in the law as interpreted by replacement theologians for the punishment to end. Thus, the nation is otherwise ostensibly set to endure eternal earthly curses. However, in properly following the dispensational model, the Bible tells us exactly when the curses of the law will end for them. And more, it tells us exactly how that ending will happen. 
What is revealed in these typological passages simply confirms this. By properly handling scripture, including both the clear text and the underlying typology, one thing is for sure. N.T. Wright is proven to be now totally wrong. N.T. Wright, N.T. Wrong, got it? Okay. A nice British accent may make for a trusty-sounding James Bond. However, it doesn't make for sound theology. That has to come through proper study of scripture. In this, his nifty accent doesn't help him one iota. For best enjoyment in this area, stick with Bond. He is way more exciting, and unlike N.T. Wright's theology, you already know that James Bond is just make-believe. What is coming upon the nation of Israel in the future? It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have, uh, I think it's three thoughts for you today. The first thought is, he did it by night. It's verses 25 through 27. Verse 25, now it came to pass the same night. And it was in the night the it. This means on the night that Gideon had built the altar and called it the Lord is peace. We saw that last week. With that accomplished and in the nighttime, verse 25 continues, that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull. Vayomer lo Yehovah. And said to him, Yehovah, take Bullock the ox, which to your father. The par or Bullock comes from parar, to break asunder, cast off, cause to cease, disannul, and so forth. For example, it can mean to break a covenant, defeat bad counsel, dissolve the earth, and so forth. The shore or ox comes from shore, to travel or journey. That comes from a primitive root, meaning to turn, such as in traveling about as a merchant. It also it is connected to the word shir, to sing. The connection is in a strolling minstrelsy. In these words, one can already see typology developing. Verse 25 continues, the second bull of seven years. Upar hashini shevashanim, and the ox, the second, seven years. The King James Version and the New King James Version make it sound as if it is speaking of the same bull. To ensure this is understood, the King James Version says even the second bull. The New King James Version just ignores it and implies that it is the same bull. They do this because nothing is later said of the first bull. However, there's no need for this. The Hebrew doesn't give any such qualifier. Further, this bull is specifically referred to again as the second Therefore, it implies two bulls. You can't have a second without a first. Many people will call the Gospels into question, and they'll say, well, in this Gospel, it says that Jesus was with one man. And in this Gospel, it says Jesus is with two men. And they say, see, there's a contradiction, and that's not God's Word. All you need to do is say, is there one person if there are two? And they'll say yes, and then you say, duh. The Bible is focusing on one person in this gospel narrative, and it's focusing on two in this, and he does it for a reason. Thus, it should be translated as if two bulls are being referred to. Without telling us why two are selected, we can assume the labor of the first was used to help accomplish the tearing down that is to take place. There is a second bull belonging to Gideon's father that was born seven years earlier that was used in the household. 
It takes us back to verse 1 where it said, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The bull was born at the beginning of the seven years of affliction that had come upon Israel by the hand of the Lord through Midian. The specific ox is to be used for a particular purpose. For now, verse 25 continues, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. Rather than of Baal, it says, Ve'harasta et mizbach asher le'avicha, and break down altar the Baal which to your father. Each time Baal is mentioned in this passage, it will be prefixed with the definite article. It is a particular Baal that was being served, possibly the sun, but maybe some other. It doesn't say. Baal signifies a heathen god. It is derived from the noun Baal, signifying a master or owner, which is from the verb Baal, meaning to marry or lord over. It is as if there is a covenant relationship between the Baal and those serving it. They have subordinated themselves to the Baal. Gideon has been instructed to destroy the Baal, signifying the breaking of this covenant relationship. Is anybody starting to see already what's going on? Think of redemptive narrative. Think of what's coming in the future. Verse 25 continues, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. Rather than beside, it says, upon. Ve'et ha-asherah, asher alav tikrot. And the asherah which upon cut down. Asherahs are based on a nature goddess companion of Baal found in Phoenicia, Assyria, Canaan, etc. They are represented by large wooden pillars or images set up in honor of Ashtarot. Examples can be seen in Judges chapter 2. The word translated as cut down is karat, the same word used in the cutting of a covenant. By destroying the altar and cutting down the Asherah, one gets the sense of cutting off of a covenant that once had been cut. The name Asherah is probably a foreign origin, but to a Hebrew audience, it is clearly identified with Ashar, the word meaning to go straight, to go on, to advance. That is normally translated, however, as happy or blessed. This is because by going straight, one stays on the proper path. Israel has not gone straight. Thus, they are not in a happy place, but rather in the place of judgment. Remember, Midian signifies the tribulation period, place of judgment. Gideon signifies the gospel. This unfortunate state came about because they failed to heed the word of the Lord through Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 7. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire right out of the law of Moses and they're not obeying it. Instead of doing what they were instructed, Israel joined the pagan practices of the nations with whom they interacted and they served gods other than the Lord. Gideon has been commissioned to this end by tearing these things down in their place, verse 26, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock. Ubanita nizbeach leYehovah Elohecha al rosh hamaoz hazeh, and build altar to Yehovah your God upon top the strength the this. Here is a new word, ma'oz, a place of safety or protection. It can be a fortress, a force, metaphorically, a helmet, the Lord, and so forth. It is derived from the verb uz, to take or seek refuge, or the verb azaz, to strengthen or be strong, 
For example, from Isaiah 25, For thou hast been a strength, ma'oz, to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Gideon is replacing the object of idolatry with an altar of strength to the Lord. Verse 26 continues, in the proper arrangement. These words are very complicated. Ba ma'araha, in the arrangement. The word is ma'araha. It's an arrangement coming from arak, to arrange or set in order, as in a battle array, or setting forth the rows of bread before the Lord in the tabernacle. This may indicate the proper means of building such an altar as specified by the Lord. Or it more likely means arranging what is used for the offering. In other words, the asherah is cut down, then it is cut up. Finally, it is arranged for burning. From there, the offering is burnt. Once that is complete, verse 26 continues, and take the second bowl and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image, which you shall cut down. Ve'lachachta et hapar. Hashani, ve ha'alita ola ba'atse ha'ashura asher tikrot, and take the bullock, the second, and ascend whole burnt offering in the wood, the asherah, which you shall cut down. Either there is one bull that was originally specified, which means taking the word and and changing it to even, which is not unheard of, but unlikely, or only the second bull is identified to be used as a whole burnt offering. Because of the specificity of the wording, the latter surely seems to be the case. Ellicott says this, the Jews point out the peculiar features of this burnt offering. One, it was not at Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle is. Two, it was not offered by a priest. Three, it was offered at night. And four, the fire was kindled with the unhallowed materials of an idol. These things are irrelevant because the Lord has commanded them to be done this way. As such, his word is justification for what takes place. Therefore, verse 27, so Gideon took 10 men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. Rather than said, it says spoke. Vayikach Gidon Asura Anashim Me Avadav Vayaas Kaashur Debur Elav Yehovah and took Gideon 10 men from his servants and does according to which spoke unto him Yehovah. The Lord spoke forth his command, and Gideon did according to the spoken word. Of the number 10, Bollinger says completeness of order, marking the entire round of anything, is therefore the ever-present signification of the number 10. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. Verse 27. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And was according to which feared house his father and men the city from doing by day and did night. It is doubtful he feared the consequences of what would take place, but that his efforts would be interrupted or thwarted. The consequences would come sooner or later once the matter was discovered. The obvious meaning is that his father's house, along with the city inhabitants, would be highly peeved at him tearing down their place of worship. An offering has been made, 
but it was rejected long ago. Instead, Israel made a trade, their glory for wind, a passing blow. But despite this, the offering stands. It is there for the people, Israel. It comes through faith, not commands, and it is fully sufficient as well. Nothing more does Israel need than to acknowledge their Lord, Jesus. To him alone, they will someday plead, and God will respond as he did for us. Our second thought is, shall strive in him the Baal. It's verses 28 through 32. Verse 28, and when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down. Va yashkimu anshe ha'er baboker. Vehine. And arising men the city in the morning, and behold, broken down, altar the Baal. Though this is speculation, the specific mention of rising early may indicate that the men specifically went to this altar as a form of sun worship. No matter what, the destruction of the idolatrous altar was revealed by the daylight. And more. Verse 28 continues. And the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. Veha ashera asher alav korata ve'et hapar hashini ho Allah al hamizbeach habanui. And the ashera which upon it was cut down and the bullock, the second, ascended upon the altar that was built. The words meticulously reveal full compliance with the Lord's spoken word. Of the unusual specificity, Cambridge asks, there must be some special meaning in this description. The second, can it refer to his place in the team, the young bullock being the leader, the first, and the second-year-old, the wheeler, the second? Instead of tearing apart the text as Cambridge normally does, they take it that the wording is so curious that it must be original. Therefore, they attempted to stretch their minds for a reason. Even if their conclusion is given in the form of an interrogative, it is evident that there must be a particular reason for such specificity in the text. Ellicott further notes, he says, It has been supposed that Gideon offered both bullocks, the first as a burnt offering for his family and the second for the nation. Nothing, however, is said of the fate of the young bullock, and apart from express direction, Gideon may have hesitated to offer to the Lord a sacrifice which may have been devoted to Baal. Why anyone would suppose that the first bull was offered is beyond the pale. The wording is so precise that it does not allow for such speculation. However, Ellicott is right that it would be a violation of the spoken word of the Lord to have offered it it can firmly be concluded that typology is being conveyed here. Verse 29, So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? Vayomer ish el re'ehu mi asa hadavar hazeh And said man unto his fellow, Who did the word? Thee this. The word davar or word carries whatever meaning is associated with what is occurring. At this time, it is a matter that is being inquired about. They see three things. One, the altar broken down, the Asherah cut down, two, and a new altar that was used to burn the second bull upon the wood of the Asherah. Three things. This is the matter at hand. Therefore, a search is made. Verse 29 continues. And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. The aspect of the verbs implies a search followed by a conclusion. Vayirchu, Vebakshu, Vayomru, Gidon, Ben Yoash, 
and inquiring, and seeking, and said, Gideon, son Joash, did the word be this? Gideon, cut her off, son of Joash, Jehovah has bestowed, is identified as the culprit. The cutter lived up to his name. He cut down and destroyed the objects of false worship that arose in the place of the Lord. Therefore, verse 30, then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. The words carry a Joseph an implied command, Vayomru ansheha er el Yoash, Hotse et bincha vayamot, and said, Men the city unto Joash, bring out your son, and he dies. They have proclaimed a death sentence on Gideon because of what he did. Verse 30 continues, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. For broken down, alter the Baal, and for cut down the Asherah, which upon it. This is their justification for executing Gideon. They rejected the Lord, broke the covenant relationship, and turned their backs to him through false worship. Gideon stood against this, and yet they would stand against him in his allegiance to the Lord, having him executed. It is almost impossible to imagine, and yet it is what is happening in both Israel and the church today. The words throughout the next verse are exceptionally strong and emphatic. Verse 31, but Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? using a paragogic nun, that's a letter at the end of a word, as a form of stress, Gideon, his father, speaks, Vayomer Yoash leko asher amdu alav, ha'atem trivun laba'al, and said Joash to all who stood upon him, the you surely striving to the ball? Imagine the people standing completely over Joash, looking down on him, angrily demanding that his son die. In return, he asked them to think through what they're doing. The absurdity of their actions was more than he could take. Thus, he continues. Verse 31 going on, would you save him? He again emphatically speaks using another paragogic nun. If you would surely save him, Gideon had just broken down the altar. He then used the wood from the Asherah to offer a whole burnt offering to God. And he couldn't stand on his own. The obvious difference between the Baal and Jehovah is brought forth. In words similar to the text verse today, the Lord through Isaiah resoundingly proclaims the following from Isaiah 46. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place. And it stands from its place. It shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. This is why the Lord commanded that no image of him should be made. He is the incomprehensible God that is not to be compared with anything that man can fashion. Therefore, Joash proclaims, verse 31 going on, let the one who would plead for him be put to death by mourning. Asher Yariv lo yumat ad haboker, whom strives to him dying until morning. 
The person who would strive for the Baal would be executed at the rising of the sun. Just when he was to be on his knees, worshiping his false god, be it the sun or some lesser god derived from sun worship. This may mean until this morning, if they are waiting for the actual sunrise, or it may mean until the next morning, if he is giving the Baal a day to avenge itself. Either way, Joash has set a red line for the people to consider. With it drawn, he turns the thought of striving for the Baal on its own head and says, verse 31 going on, if he is a God, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. He uses a Joseph as a challenge to the Baal along with highly emphatic words, certainly as a taunt. If God, he shall strive to him for has broken down his altar. The altar of the Baal, along with the Asherah, which supposedly has power, should wake up the Baal and make him angry. In his anger, he can then take the necessary action to defend himself. If he doesn't, then he is no god at all. Unlike the temple in Jerusalem, where it was prophesied in advance what would happen to it in each catastrophe it faced, the altar of the Baal had no such word. Therefore, it would be assumed that it would either last forever or be avenged by him for any desecration. The temple of the Lord was different. Instead of merely standing for the Lord, it stood as a testament to either the faithfulness or faithlessness of Israel to the covenant administered there. Here we go from 1 Kings 9. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. Without any such word, because the altar to thee Baal was made by man, Without any sanction by the false god it deified, Joash insisted that anyone who strove for it should be executed. Verse 32, therefore on that day he called him Jerubbaal. The name is a play on the word Yarev, to strive, that Joash thrice pronounced. Vayikralo bayom hahu Yerubbaal, and called to him in the day the it Jerubbaal. The verb is impersonal. Thus, it means that people in general, not Joash, called Gideon this name on that day. It is like saying, on that day, he got called Jerubbaal. The name is based on the event, Baal strives, or let Baal strive. That would be based on another Joseph spoken next by Joash. Verse 32 finishes with these words, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. Lemor Yarev bo habaal kinatats et mizho, saying, shall strive in him the baal, for has broken down his altar. 
The point of the words and the giving of the name is that the Baal cannot contend with Gideon. If he could, they would have called Gideon contender with Baal. But that would imply that the Baal could contend. Gideon broke down the altar, and neither the altar nor the Baal could respond. The victory over the Baal is complete. The Lord, through Gideon, has prevailed. The bull is offered to our God, just as the Lord spoke to us. Through it comes the approval nod, as we call out to him through Jesus. Seven years of hell on earth have come upon us to this day. What we need is the new birth and to follow in his only way. Jesus, we have finally seen our need, and so to him we will bow the knee. No more with the Baal shall we plead. Only our Messiah can set us free. Our third thought today is pictures of Christ. It would be possible to combine the typology together with what is coming in the rest of the chapter, meaning the fleece that gets the water and he squeezes it out, but there would be way too much lost. What we have seen in this section began with Gideon being tasked by the Lord the night of the same day as when the Lord appeared to him and gave him his commission to save Israel from the Midianites. As it said, and it was in the night, the it, and said to him, Yehovah. It was seen previously that Gideon anticipates the gospel. It is now being prepared to be brought to Israel. As we saw, it was validated as the good news and that which establishes the peace of the Lord, Jehovah Shalom. When will it finally and fully come to Israel? Yes, you in the 22nd row. Yes, that is correct. During the tribulation period. And what is that period called by Paul in 1 Thessalonians? Very good. A plus. The night. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor's pain upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. He is told to take the bullock, the ox, which to your father. It is referring to the law of Moses that Israel repeatedly violated since it was first given. The ox is given to reveal that it is time to disannul the covenant. Now, something came to my mind. I didn't put it in the sermon, but how many servants did he take with him? Ten. There's ten commandments that are fulfilled in the fulfilling of the law of Moses. Okay, I did not include that in there because I didn't want to confuse the issue, but I wanted to give that to you so you know. That has actually happened already in Christ's coming. But Israel rejected him. Thus, they are still bound to the Mosaic covenant. Only in the future will they realize the disannulment of the law through the work of Christ. That is stated explicitly in Hebrews 8, verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is written to Israel. This is written to the Hebrew people. It is obsolete, but it is ready to vanish away, and we're seeing that right now in typology. The author of Hebrews is writing to the Hebrew people collectively about their future. There is a point in time that the law, 
which is annulled in Christ, will be obsolete for them, and it will pass away. That first bull was also called a shore, or ox. As noted, that comes from shore, to travel or journey. The connection is that the Mosaic Covenant has been a journey upon which Israel has traveled, wending its way toward Christ, as Paul said in Galatians 3. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. There was also a specific reference to a second bull and the ox the second seven years. This means that this ox came to be at the same time the tribulation period, the oppression of Midian began. That was seen in Judges 6, verse 2. It is another covenant that Israel placed itself under. Is anybody seeing it yet? Here it says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, seven years. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. That's Daniel 9, verse 27. To fully understand the timeline of the future tribulation period, you can go back and watch the superior word, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 and 9 Bible study entitled, And Then. The timeline is clearly laid out concerning the order of the coming end times events, and it is perfectly pictured right here in this passage today. This covenant is made with the Antichrist. Hence, the focus from this point on concerns this second bull. However, it was logically deduced that the purpose of the first bull was to assist in the tearing down of the altar of the Baal. The law itself anticipates its own ending, as has been seen previously. In the process of it ending, it will be used to bring down the covenant with the Antichrist. In other words, in the ending of the law, Israel will accept the gospel. At that time, the second covenant, the one with the Antichrist, will be ended as well. Everybody seeing the typology? Still in verse 25, each time Baal is mentioned, it is prefixed by the definite article. It is a specific reference to the idolatry of Israel, believing in their own deeds before God rather than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their deeds under the law had become their object of worship. Ultimately, this is the Baal that must be ended. In cutting down the Asherah, which is upon the altar, it is signifying that Israel, through the gospel, will finally take the straight path that leads to a state of happiness and blessedness. The word Ashar, from which Asherah is derived. Once the task was happily effected, Gideon was to, verse 26, build an altar to Jehovah your God upon the strength, Maoz, the this. The altar anticipates Christ. This is seen in a marvelous pun from Isaiah, where the coming of Jesus is hinted at. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving, Yeshua, salvation's refuge, ma'oz, of his anointed, Messiah, the Mashiach. Literally, the verse is translated, Jehovah, strength to them, and strength, salvation's, his anointed, he. Still in verse 26, the arranging of the altar is noted. The arrangement anticipates the placing of all of one's works on the altar of sacrifice before the Lord, who alone provides salvation. Israel is to give up on the errant path and come to Christ. When that happens, the second bull, the covenant with the Antichrist, will be annulled. 
Thus, both the law of Moses and the seven-year covenant end at the same time, exactly as proper dispensationalism has revealed. The symbolism is seen in the deeds of idolatrous self, meaning the law, being burnt under the seven-year-old bull, the seven-year peace treaty. Listen again to what Ellicott said. It is exactly what lies ahead for Israel. The Jews point out the peculiar features of this burnt offering. One, it was not at Shiloh. Two, it was not offered by a priest. Three, it was offered at night. And four, the fire was kindled under the unhallowed materials of an idol. Rather, it is offered upon Jesus the true high priest, during the tribulation period, and it is the ending of Israel's unhallowed conduct. Verse 27 saw Gideon, the gospel, taking 10 men of his servants. In this, it implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. Everything necessary for Israel's salvation is tied up in the transmission and reception of the gospel. Christ died in fulfillment of the law, the Ten Commandments, which is a picture or the embodiment of all of the law of Moses. And again, in verse 27, it said that they did this at night. It is a stress all by itself. Israel will come to Christ during the tribulation period, which Paul says is the night. The actions were complete by the morning. Verse 28, what is true for each person who comes to Christ will also be true for national Israel. From 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. Think of the tribulation period. We're having ours revealed by fire at the Bema Seat of Christ. They are having theirs revealed by fire in the tribulation period. Verse 28 noted that the work of Gideon was completed and that the people saw the results of it. Therefore, verse 29 referred to the people questioning who had done it. A search was made, inquiring and seeking. And the response was, Gideon, son Joash, did the word, thee this. The gospel of Christ, son Jehovah has blessed, accomplished the word. What a marvelous testimony to the future reception of the gospel by Israel. Christ, the incarnate word of God, will be seen for who he is in the reception of the good news that tells of him. Obviously, when the leaders of Israel call out to Jesus, it does not mean that all of Israel will have done so. It is the leadership that must receive him in order for the nation to be saved. Some will hear him protest. Hence the words of verse 30 about bringing out the son, the gospel of Jesus, so that he should die. They initially buck against what has been done until they too understand the implication of the gospel. That is seen in these verses in the back and forth exchange between the people and his father Joash. The leaders will come back and essentially say what Peter said to the Judaizers two millennia earlier. His words, Peter, now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. The use of the emphatics, the paragogic nuns, and successive jussives show the incredible nature of what lies ahead for Israel. What? Are you kidding? The law has been a weight around the neck of Israel since the beginning. It only brought them trouble. And yet there will be those who want to cling to it as if it is their salvation. But Joash, Jehovah has blessed, in verse 31 says, Thee, you, surely striving to the Baal? 
in essence, you would strive for the law instead of the gospel? That's crazy. He then said, if you would, surely save him. In other words, can you perfectly meet the demands of the law? Can you stand righteous before God as Jesus did? Can you become Israel's Messiah? Therefore, still in verse 31, Joash says, whom strives to him, meaning for the law, dying until morning. Stated more clearly, when the tribulation period is over, judgment is coming. If you want to trust in yourself, good luck, buddy boy. He then said, if God, he shall strive to him for has broken down his altar. If the law is your God, the Lord would defend its continuance. But he has sent Jesus to fulfill and end the law. That is God's testimony. The altar of the Lord stood as a testament to either the faithfulness or the faithlessness of Israel to the covenant administered there. In the tribulation period, it will be defiled by the Antichrist. This shows God's approval was not with the law. Rather, it is with Jesus. The word testifies to this. Israel has simply been blinded to the fact with that, verse 32 told that Gideon was called by the name Jerubbaal, let Baal strive. The law failed to strive against Jesus. Thus, he prevailed over it. The law has no power against him because the law is not where the power of God is. Rather, our closing verse today will explain where the power lies. As you can see, the analysis of N.T. Wright is proven once again to be now totally wrong. The typology presented has clearly shown this. Even without the typology, scripture clearly reveals what the typology presented also shows. God is presenting to us portions of the history of Israel and is essentially asking us to question why he chose these stories. Each name, each location, and each event is given to lead us to a better understanding of what will come about in the future. Keep reading the Bible. The more you do, the more it will reveal to you what is on God's mind. Jesus has indeed fulfilled everything necessary for Israel's salvation. But this does not mean that Israel is out. It means that the promises to them will only be fulfilled when they accept what Jesus has done for them. One of the errors of replacement theology is that it mistakenly categorizes biblical issues, conflating some things that should not be conflated and rejecting core principles that should not be ignored. Hold fast to the understanding that God is not yet done with Israel. Can you tell that I'm passionate about this today? I'm so excited because there is a future for those people that are over there right now having gay pride parades and shoving it in God's face. But God is infinitely good to his people because he covenanted with them. He loves Israel because of the patriarchs and he will not reject them. His covenant faithfulness towards them tells us that he also will never be done with you when you come to him through Jesus Christ. This is the faithfulness of God to his people unfaithful or otherwise. Thank God for his grace and his mercy as is revealed in the giving of his beautiful son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. amen. It is so exciting to see these things come to pass right in front of our eyes in stories that make no sense otherwise. They make absolutely no sense, but when you understand what God is doing, what he is showing us, 
in typology, it clears up all of this baggage that people have thrown on top of the gospel for the past 2,000 years. Making stuff up because they don't understand what God is doing. Let me tell you something. When it says that the Jews are blinded, they have a veil over their face, guess what? The church did too. They could not believe that the Jews would ever be a people again. They could not believe it. They're everywhere. There's a couple here and there's two over there. There's three in Japan. They will never come together. The land is completely barren. It is completely waste. It will never be productive again. And yet the Bible said all along that it would be productive again. Where is your faith in the word of God? In N.T. Wright's analysis of this? Absolutely not. Have faith that God is going to be faithful to you when you fail him. And you will. I know I do. There's not a day that I go to bed and I think, gee, I did good today. Not one. Every single day of my life, I'm saying, Jesus, I can't believe that you saved me, but I accept by faith that I am still saved because of your covenant keeping, not mine. Thank God for Jesus in his shed blood. Thank God for Jesus. If you have never called on him, please do so today. It's so simple. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. That's what you have to believe, that God was good enough to step into the stream of humanity and do what you cannot do. You sinned. You sinned when Adam sinned. You are in Adam, and you can't go back. Time is going this way, folks. You can't go back and undo what he did, much less anything you did in the past how many years of your life. It's all behind you, and you have to pay the penalty for it, or Christ will pay it for you. Please call on Jesus today. Here it is, closing verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Those words right there converted Martin Luther. Now, I know he didn't have the greatest theology because he was how many hundreds of years ago, but he got on the right train when it came to the gospel. There's nothing I can do. Walking up the steps of Rome on my knees didn't satisfy my soul. He tried everything. And yet he read that verse right there and he said, I understand what God is doing. Great stuff. And people have been building on that ever since. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Next week is Judges 6, 33 through 40. It's fun. It's so swell. We get Jay to help some more. It's entitled Gideon, Judge of Israel. Part four. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 21st Judge's Sermon. Yes, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him and live for him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Twice in the past week and a half, I've talked to a guy. And I told him, I, had, I don't take time off. I haven't had a day off since 2020, September. He said, man, you got to have your rest. The Bible says that. And I said, yes. It says in Hebrews 4, 3, now we who believe do enter that rest. I had to repeat it to him because I am in my rest. I don't care if I work myself to death for Jesus. I want to get this word out to people. I want people to know what is hidden in these passages that is so beautiful, so absolutely marvelous. And here we read over them, and they don't make any sense. Come along for the journey. Come along and join in what he is showing us. I'm so excited. I'm so excited every time I see this. It's like, where did that come from? 
I've read them a million times and didn't understand it. But when you get time to sit down and analyze them for 18 or 15 hours or whatever, all of a sudden it starts making sense. It's wonderful. Everybody got it? If you didn't get it, go back and read it and compare it with the verses and you'll get it. The Bible says that tribulation is coming upon Israel and it will be initiated with a seven-year covenant. Got the bull? It's pictured right there. It's got to end. And it ends at the same time that they come to Christ and the law is fulfilled for them in Christ. It's all right there. Great stuff. Um, I have a question for you. I got something special today because I didn't think of anything to bring. Did I, I didn't even think. And then somebody was looking at this and says, what is that? And I said, well, that's Noah's Ark. It's silver. It's a pin you can wear. Um, so if you're a guy, you can give it to the lady of your choice. Uh, it's Noah's Ark. It's got little, um, what are the what, giraffes? It's got um, elephants. It's got horses. It's silver, I think. So, um, yeah. The what? So he said something. Anyway, okay, here we go. If you can get this, it is yours. Um, yeah, you better raise your hand for this because everybody's going to get this. If you don't, I'm going to be really disappointed in you. Raise your hand real quick. I'm going to look. And if I, if I have some, stop that. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be partial. I tell you what, why don't you come up here? You come up here so you can watch with me because I don't want to, I don't want to be blamed. This is so easy. You watch with me. They got to val got to validate it. So that means you can, well, you can participate, but okay. In the armor of God, what is the sword of the Spirit? Uh, you had your hand up first, didn't she? Yeah. Okay, I thought so. And then I saw a second one come up about two uh, seconds later or half second later. What, what did you say it was? It is the Word of God, the Bible. And, and so you didn't have to compete anyway. Okay, uh, I want to see you wearing this sometime. This is really cool. My friend was uh, cleaning out a house, and uh, I guess the person had died, and they were getting rid of all stuff, and he said, man, I want that for Charlie at the church. And so he gave it to me. I've had it up there waiting for the right day to find. So, hey, there you go. The word, who? Somebody was really close. It was, that hand went up, and then there was another. Who was? Was it you? Okay, it was really close. It was very close. But you, you had yours up quicker. What's that? Why is it double-edged? Um, uh, 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 that's Hebrews. Hebrews says it's double-edged. This one, uh, the what? 4.12. Yes, Hebrews 4.12. Thank you. It cuts both ways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, double mouth. The Hebrew is uh, the mouth of the sword. It consumes both ways. Um, uh, so the word of God. Now think of this again. Think of what I, that question, you just answered it. Think of this. In the armor of God, what is the sword of the spirit? What does that tell you? It tells you without the word of God, you are not exercising the spirit. These people that get up on stages and do crazy stuff and claim it's of the spirit, it's not. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. If you don't have the word of God, you are not exercising and wielding the spirit. I hope you understand that. Read your Bible. This is for you. Oops, I hope I didn't drop it. Okay. I did it. Jumped right out of my fingers when I was trying to put it down. Okay, we're going to read a poem and we'll uh, take the Lord's up. I'm so excited today. It's so beautiful what this word is telling us. It is so majestic. Gideon, Judge of Israel, part three. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of all that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. So you have been told. And build an altar to the Lord your God. Think of what we talked about today. On the top of this rock in the proper arrangement too. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So you shall do. 
So Gideon took 10 men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him, doing it just right. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down. No more offerings to it would be proffered. And the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And on the altar which had been built, the second bull was being offered. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? This makes our ears ring. And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. We will not acquit because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? I give you this warning. Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. I know he will falter. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbaal, saying, Let Baal contend against him, because he has torn down his altar. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Instead of praying you out today, I want to do something different. The word of God is a prayer all by itself. Because we're going to have another prayer before we close. This is verses 33 through 40 that we're going to look at next week. You know, I remember the first time I read this passage. And I thought, what is this all about? All these years later, there are a couple key points in the Bible that I've just waited to preach on. Next week is one of them. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abizarites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Isn't that fascinating? Next week, 